For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we pray for the ministry of your spirit, that Christ would speak through your word, his word, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, convicted of our sins, encouraged in the Lord Jesus, and made holier by your spirit, and that we would follow him who is our Lord, and in whose name we pray, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. In chapter 10 of Paul's letter to the Romans, he's dealing with Israel's rejection of their Messiah. Remember in chapter 9, he did the same thing, but in that chapter, the Apostle Paul gave the reason as to their rejection being that God was working on this principle of election, that not all Israel is Israel, and the promises were made to the elect, and so only the elect at that time responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 10, he confesses again, he shares with us his desire, his heart's desire and prayer to Israel that they might be saved. And a little later, beginning verse 2, he discusses the human reasons as to why Israel rejected their Messiah. And we looked at that in verses 1 through 8. They had a zeal for God, not according to knowledge. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, that is, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. And he says there that they sought to establish, verse 3, their own righteousness, not having submitted to the righteousness of God. For, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so they, in their pride, just as all prideful men do who hear the gospel, they reject it. They rely upon their own goodness, so-called, their own works of the law, saying and thinking they don't have a need to be saved from themselves. And so that's what they did, and they rejected and crucified the Lord of glory. Then a little later in the chapter there, in verses 5 and following, he quotes or refers to Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is giving the law again to Israel. And there he talks about the fact that there is this principle of law. If you really want to be saved by the law, then you have to live according to the law. And that, of course, is impossible, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to have to operate by the law and that principle in order to be saved. And so he refers to Deuteronomy 30, continuing in the chapter, saying that the word is near you, it's in your heart, in your mouth, and 
You don't have to go to heaven uh, to, to be saved or hear the message. You don't have to go to the abyss to hear the message or be saved. And the point is, as he says, the word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. And so then, as we think about that, the question naturally for the Israelites who were prideful would be this. If we're not saved according to our obedience and the works of the law, then how are we saved? How does one, in fact, receive the salvation that God offers? And so, in verses 9 and following, he trans, or transitions into a discussion of that answer. And from there, in verse 11, he proceeds to make the point once again that the Gentiles are included in the kingdom of God, of course, by faith in Jesus, and that their inclusion in the kingdom of God is not plan B, that this is according to the promises in the Old Testament, in fact, as we'll go on to see, uh, to God's plan that he put together in eternity before he created the heavens and the earth. We've already seen that with chapter 9 and the doctrine of election. And so last in this chapter, beginning of verse 4, Paul picks up the topic of evangelism and its necessity and how there's no distinction that all should hear the gospel and Lord willing will consider that in the week and weeks ahead. And so this morning we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 10 here in Paul's letter and in verses 9 through 13. And this is where Paul explains how it is that one receives the salvation that God provides through the gospel of his son. And so that's the question. That's the question. If it's not by the works of the law, if it's not by our law keeping that we receive salvation by our doing good, then how does one receive salvation? To put it in the vernacular, how is one saved? That's what Paul is dealing with in these verses. And so we'll begin to answer that question. And uh, basically we'll have three headings here this morning. First of all, one receives God's plan of salvation through a particular confession and belief. That's what he says, right? We receive the salvation that God offers through a particular confession and belief. Now, why is it that we need salvation in the first place? What does the word salvation mean? It means to be delivered, to be rescued, and all of this to be saved. That's not a bad word, by the way. Maybe you've, in your spiritual journey, in your growth and and knowledge and in the grace of Christ, have have wondered, should I even ask that question? Are you saved? We have to define what that means. And it is a biblical word. And uh, the question is, from what? From what do we need to be saved? Well, I'll tell you, we need to be saved from ourselves and from God. Remember how Paul opens this letter in chapter 1 there? He begins by talking about the gospel in verse 18, and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, Unrighteousness uh, is rebellion against God and His law, His commandments, and that is ungodly. And he talks about how there is this slippery slope. And so in Romans 1, he talks about the society, the culture, the people that reject the living God. Even though they have a knowledge of God, they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And he talks about that slippery slope. And I think we're 
uh, pretty far down that slope in our nation today because we have rejected the living and true God. And so by the time he gets to Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. And as the Bible says elsewhere, when it talks about our righteousness, doing what is right, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you adults, I won't describe what that is in public, not today. But it's a stench in the nostrils of God. And so we need to be saved from ourselves, from self-destruction, spiritual suicide, and we need to be saved from the wrath of God. And so we talk about salvation, that's what we're talking about. And the way to receive that, or I should say, uh, what we do receive in the gospel when we receive it the right way is the righteousness of God. Paul has talked about this alien, this foreign righteousness, and righteousness means doing what is right, ultimately, and God defines what that is in His Word, in His commandments, His law. We receive the righteousness of God apart from the law, Romans 3.21. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is this alien righteousness that we need to receive in order to stand before a holy God, and it's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, how do we receive this gift of salvation, which includes the righteousness of Christ? That's the question. Paul says here, contrary to the unbelieving, stubborn Israelites, like we were before we came to Christ, he says, contrary to them, in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth something, it's received through a confession. And what does it mean to confess? What is this confession? The word means to profess or to declare, to announce, to affirm, to admit, to confess and allegiance. It can mean these things. They're all similar. And in the Bible, there are several different types of confessions. There is a confession of sin, and uh, that means to own one's sin, to admit, children. A confession of sin means that you admit your sin. You agree with God what He says about your actions, that they are bad, that they are wicked and evil when you've done those things that are bad, wicked, and evil. So in Psalm 32 and verse 5, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, the confession here is a different type of confession, but salvation begins with the confession of sin, doesn't it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. But it begins with this confession that Paul speaks about here. Also, there is a righteousness that is received through faith. There is a salvation, he says, that is received through a confession. And there's also a righteousness that is received by faith or belief. He says there in verse 9, if you believe in your heart, this statement that he says that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. And if you look at verse 10, he says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Through this belief one receives righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So these are the two things, confession and belief, or confession and faith. Now you might notice in the text there in verse 9, confession comes before belief. But in verse 10, belief comes before confession. Now, why is that? I can take a stab at it. Uh, First of all, in verse 9, he's reflecting the order that is back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's the order he refers, he alludes to Moses here in our text in verse 5. And that's Deuteronomy 30. So that's the order. But I think here he also reverses the order to show that it doesn't have to come in that order. In fact, the more natural order would be belief and then a confession. Why? As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And so what has been worked in the heart will bubble forth and come out of our mouths. And so... That's what's going on there with that order, confession, and belief. And so the salvation, Paul is telling them, it's not far. The salvation of God is not far from them. It's in their mouths. It's in their hearts. And in that sense, it's not difficult to receive this salvation. It's not difficult. Why? Because it's close. You don't have to fly into heaven or go down to hell or the abyss or whatever he's talking about there. But on the other hand, it is difficult. Why do I say that? Because Jesus says in John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God. It takes the miracle of new birth, a new creation, a new heart, in order for a person to make this confession and to believe this article of the Christian faith that he speaks about here in our text. And so second then, one receives God's salvation through a confession and a belief in the person and work of Christ Jesus. A person receives this salvation by confession and faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look there, Um, He says that in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so this is contrary, negatively speaking, this is contrary to Paul's ethnic brethren, the Jewish people. They rejected Jesus. They crucified the Lord of glory. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own. Why? Because of their spiritual pride. That's what keeps men coming to the Lord Jesus for salvation. However, Paul says here that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our own heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so, first of all, there's this confession in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or that Jesus is Lord. And so this is significant. If you want to be saved and receive the gift of salvation and avoid hell forever, eternal death, and receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, full communion with God forever, 
receiving that which, for which we were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is important. You must do this. What is it? Confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what does this word Lord mean? Kurios in the original had several meanings. It could mean master as opposed to slave. It could mean ruler. It could have uh, the, the, the meaning of sir today. Remember, uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Husbands, don't beat your wives over the head with that one. But uh, she respected her husband, ladies. That's what that means when Peter talks about that. Um, but when it says here that we are to confess Jesus as Lord, it doesn't mean we call him sir. In one sense, it does mean he is our master. In the ultimate sense, it does, just as in the ultimate sense, it means he is our ruler. But this word Lord here is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Lord. Um, could, could have been the Hebrew word Adonai or Yahweh or Jehovah, those uh, words for Lord in the Old Testament. And this is what it means. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just Mary's son. Uh, he is the Lord God. And this word Lord, again, was a title for God in the Old Testament. It's used some 6,000 times. And it referred to God's lordship, the fact that he ruled over all. Why? Because as the creator, he rules over all. Think about this. In Psalm 93 and verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. In Nehemiah 9, 6, God's people were called to confess their sins and to pray a prayer. And here's what they prayed in Nehemiah 9, 6 to God. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Why? Because he is the Lord. And Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Remember in Matthew, Mary, the virgin, was with child. God, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed her. This little one was conceived by the Holy Ghost. We confess every week the Lord Jesus. The angels come to Mary and Joseph. They say, you shall call his name what? Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Why? Because his name, Jesus, means the Lord saves. Yahweh, Jehovah, saves. The name Jesus points us back to the term Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, God. The Lord saves. Jesus referred to himself as the Lord in Luke 19.31. In Matthew 12, Jesus says of himself that he is, that is the Son of Man, is even Lord of the Sabbath. That means he is above it, that he is the one who gave it the Sabbath day. After his resurrection, Jesus, of course, appears. He declares his lordship in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And of course, the apostles, it was Peter in Acts chapter 10, after he had the vision, uh, again, showing him that the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. Peter says this 
in chapter 10 of Acts, verse 36, there's no partiality with him. And he says of Jesus, he is Lord over all. So what does this mean to say that Jesus is Lord? It means that the Son of God, Jesus, is the second person of the Godhead who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It means, as Jesus said, I think it's John 10, he says, I and my Father are one. And in John 5, when he said something to that effect, uh, the people there understood that he made himself equal with God. It means that. That he's equal with God, that he is God. It means that Jesus is Jehovah. In Matthew 22, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, I think it was them, they came to, to Jesus. They tried to trip him up and they quoted, they referred to uh, Psalm 118. You know, the, the Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus turns the table. He says, Well, how does David call him Lord? Meaning the Messiah, the one who is to come, his son. The Lord said to my Lord, that, that points that, that there, it proves that there are at least two persons in the Godhead. And just in case you're wondering, the, uh, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. He was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our own image. There's plurality within the Godhead. Acts chapter 5, it says there that the Holy Spirit is God. But in Matthew 22, Jesus is proving his deity. That he is divine, he is the second person of the Godhead. Now, when you think about it and put all of this together, this is really what it means. It means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is ruler over all. He's over his church. Ephesians 5, 23. He's the head of his church. We can all agree with that, I think. He's the ruler of creation. In Matthew 8, there he is in the boat with the disciples. He's asleep. Why? He's at perfect peace. Why? Because he is the one in control. They're panicking. They're freaking out. Oh, are you going to do something? He says, peace, be still. The winds and the waves obey him. Who is this? He's Lord of creation. And he's Lord of the nations. We need to remember that today. The Father promises the Messiah... By the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name, and Lord is not Jesus' first name. Lord and Christ are titles. Maybe I once believed that, could, could be, or thought that. But in case you have thought that, that's not what it means. Lord is a title. Christ is a title. Christ is Messiah. And uh, in the second psalm, the, the Father promises to His Son, the one whom He has begotten, of course, eternally, the nations for his inheritance. And at the end, it calls upon the kings and the rulers of the earth to bow to the Son, to kiss the Son, to bless the Son, to trust in the Son, lest they be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel. And so Jesus today, especially since he has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father on the throne of David, Acts chapter 2 says, the nations and the rulers of the nations are to bow before him. And you know what? There's two things we're told we're not to talk about. Religion and politics. And I get it. I'm a pastor. I have to hold my tongue because I don't want to put a stumbling block down there unnecessarily and, and destroy a chance I might have to bring the gospel of Christ to someone. I get that. And I try to exercise that. And I try to think before I hit post on social media and all of that. And I've had to go back and take some of it down, okay? 
I understand. But think about what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 19, the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. It doesn't stop there. He is Lord of lords. A Lord is a ruler on the earth. Jesus is over and above and in authority over all the rulers of the earth. And they are to express and vow their allegiance to him. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he is the creator. He is the ruler. All men are subject to him. That's what we're saying. And he is to be worshipped, therefore, by all. In Philippians 2, just in case you need more scripture, um, Paul there talks about the humiliation of Jesus, and then after that, the exaltation of Jesus. And he says he's been super exalted, highly exalted, Philippians 2, 9. Verse 10, it says that at the name of Jesus, which is the name above every name, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is to be adored, honored, and worshipped. And that's important for us to remember today. When the nations are in chaos, when men are trying to rule over other men, and when there is uncertainty, Jesus is Lord over the nations. He's Lord over the governments. He's Lord over coronavirus. He's Lord over evil. He's Lord over good. He's Lord over all things in heaven and on earth. And this means for you in your particular situation, Jesus is Lord over that. Your, your rocky marriage, Jesus is Lord over that. Your family situation, Jesus is Lord over that. And we're to subject all of our thoughts to Him as Lord. We are to bring, 2 Corinthians 10 says, every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. And so we are to think God's thoughts after Him. Why? We don't have the right to think our own thoughts and be independent. No, we're to subject all of our thoughts to Him. And where do we find His thoughts? the Word of God. We're to have a biblical understanding of all things, a biblical worldview. And this confession, as you can see, is no empty confession. Remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and He's speaking to a covenant community, um, the Jews, and He says, not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter. But those who do the will of my Father will enter. And so we can say, Lord, Lord, oh, you remember me. I went to church, you know, three times a year or 50. And uh, I didn't cuss much. Um, you know, I did this, I did this. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And so... Doing the will of the Father begins with repentance, and it begins with making this confession that Jesus is Lord. You see, it must be personal. It must be a personal appropriation, a personal confession of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just think it 
No, you must own it. You must be like Thomas, who was doubting Thomas, who after the resurrection, he saw Jesus, his wounds, and he said, my Lord, my God. It's not enough to say the Lord and the God. It it must be my Lord, my God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Elsewhere, he says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. That's how significant and important this is for us. And especially in a day of cancel culture, when people are scrolling through your social media to see what you said, they have no idea of what the word forgiveness means and growth in grace and improvement. Why? Because they want to purge us. And they're going to come after Christians unless God does a mighty work. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not a prophet. But you need to be prepared for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I personally, this is me personally, okay? I believe that there are Marxists in our society today. And if you study Marxism, Marxism and Christianity cannot coexist. Because the state becomes God. There becomes this messianic, it's been said, messianic character of the state. And pray for revival. Okay? You need to remember, as I say that, Jesus is Lord over communism, Marxism, socialism, capitalism, and all forms of unbelief and whatever is out there. But Jesus is Lord. That must be our confession. What will this look like? Well, if an adult is converted and baptized, that person makes a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Covenant children have the opportunity to make a public profession of faith. We were talking about that this morning in the uh, communicants class and, and the importance of what it means when you partake of the Lord's Supper. But also in everyday life, right? It's not just before the church making this profession of faith, this confession. Think of the thief on the cross. There was one on one side condemning Jesus, blaspheming Jesus, questioning. If you're the Christ, throw yourself down. The other guy stood up. He defended the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made a confession of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so as we're at the water cooler, you know, if we ever go back to work or if you're on Zoom and you have the opportunity, think about it. Don't deny Christ. I realize you have to be wise. Jesus says, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But there, there were times when I was in the, quote, working world when people would look at me and it was like all of a sudden I was front and center. I was on a stage and 50 spotlights were put on me. And I confessed Christ. Will you? Have you? Before friends, neighbors, co-workers, people you're scared of? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't, Peter denied the Lord three times. But he repented. Christ restored him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter was restored by Christ. So that's good news for us today.
as we think about the significance of what it means. There's another thing here, and uh, it is the belief that God raised him from the dead. If you look at verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in your heart. It's not an empty confession. What is the heart? As one has said, the heart is central to the Christian faith. And we see that here, don't we? Biblically, the heart refers to the whole person. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. There is thinking in the heart, biblically speaking. It's inside. Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart, guard your heart. With all diligence, why? For out of it spring the issues of life. How you behave and what you speak is a reflection of your heart. Those two cannot be separated. And so, in Matthew 12, 24, Jesus says, How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in Jeremiah 9, 20, or rather 9, 10, says there, the heart is deceitful above all things. You see, we need a new one. And so that's why in the gospel, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, God promises a new heart on which is written His commandments, a clean heart, a pure heart that He gives to us in regeneration, being born again by the Holy Spirit. And He says, in your heart, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... Now, maybe you've wondered, as have I, why this phrase? Why is it necessary to believe that God raised him from the dead? Well, he's talking about what? The resurrection? God raised him from the dead? The third day? Of course. Well, the reason Paul says this is because he's already discussed the significance of the the, uh, resurrection, I guess Revelation 2, the revelation of the Lord Jesus at the end of chapter 4. And the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus confirms everything that God has said about His Son. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ confirms everything that He said about Himself and everything that He said, period. Remember how Paul opens the letter to the Romans in chapter 1? In verse 1 it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was proven to be the Son of David, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. How? By the resurrection from the dead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, as he says there in Romans 4, 24, the apostle wrote this earlier. He says, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. God was testifying to the world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. that This is my beloved son. He accomplished what I asked him to accomplish. I receive his once for all 
perfect, per perfect sacrifice on behalf of his people, my chosen. And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it means that you believe what the Bible says about Jesus. It's that simple, kiddos. You believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he taught wonderful, truthful things, that he suffered in your place, that he was crucified, dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That he ascended on high. He's seated at David's, on David's throne right now at the right hand of God the Father. You will be saved. It's not just that you recite a creed every week if you go to a church that does that. But do you believe it? These aren't empty words. They're God's words. And so it's more than just the fact of the resurrection, but what the resurrection means or signifies. That God the Father attested to the world that Jesus is His Son, that Jesus is the Anointed One, He is the Christ, He is our prophet, our priest, and our King. And then last we see here that one receives God's salvation through confession and belief or faith in the person and work of Christ resulting in salvation. I'm going to point out the obvious to you. Note the consequences of such a faith and confession. If you look at verse 9, you can see the phrase there, you will be saved. Verse 10, unto righteousness. Verse 10, unto salvation. Verse 11, will not be put to shame. At the end of verse 13, shall be saved. These are all of the consequences of this confession and this faith, this belief. And you see, what are these? These are all the different benefits, benefits that Christ has secured for His people. Again, the word saved means to be rescued from danger. The word righteousness means to be right before God. It deals with our justification that we're declared not guilty. It's the opposite of being condemned. There's therefore now no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. And notice what else it says there in verse 11, quoting, I think, Isaiah 28. It says, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Just that phrase right there is a sermon. Being put to shame. Why do I say that? It goes back again to Isaiah 28. That goes back, in my mind, to Genesis chapter 2. Why do I say that? Genesis 2 is a summary of God's creation. At the end of that chapter, it says this. It talks about the man and the woman. And they were not what? Ashamed. Genesis 3 comes. The serpent comes. They sin. They try to cover their sin. They try to flee from God and hide from Him. Why? Because they were ashamed. Why? Because of their sin against God in His very presence. And that's the way we should all feel when we sin against God. But here's the glory of the gospel of Christ. On the cross, Jesus took our shame 
and our guilt and was forsaken by the Father that we might be ushered into the very presence of God and stand before Him unashamed. Even at the last day. And so that's a promise of the gospel and a benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. And we receive that by confessing that He is the Lord and believing in our heart that God raised Him from the dead and all of the things entailed with that. And then last, we see here um, that these benefits are open to all indiscriminately. You see here in verses 12 and 13, Paul shows how righteousness cannot come from the law because there's only one way of salvation, and that way of salvation includes the Gentiles who didn't have the law. This is brilliant. Paul does not have for us a Roman numeral, Harvard style, or whatever, Chicago style, whatever, outline. But he's, he's writing this letter, and it would have clicked in the minds of many, I think, that, oh, there's one way. Look at the terms he uses. He's talking about the Gentiles. If the Gentiles can be saved this way, that means that the Jews were not saved this way. And when you put it all together, that's what you get. I mean, if you look at the, the language here in verse 12, he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all Jew and Gentile who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting from Joel 2, which prophesied the, the coming days of the gospel, which included the Gentiles coming in to the kingdom. And so if the Jews can be saved without the law, rather, if the Gentiles can be saved without the law, then the Jews can be saved without the law. And if the Jews can be saved without the law, that destroys the Jewish her heresy that you need the law to be saved. There's one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. That principle applies to Jews as well as Gentiles. We could talk about many other passages of Scripture that deal with this. And so this morning... As we think about the way we receive this salvation offered to us in the gospel of God. Paul here tells us it is through a confession and a belief. It is through a confession and a belief that Jesus is the Lord. And the, the belief in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And that that results in salvation. For Paul says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. For with the, the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of your Son. That you have rescued us. That you have not required dead men to rise from the dead in and of themselves in order to believe. That you have not required wicked men who are enslaved to sin and Satan to do good in order to be saved but that you have delivered us 
You've given us new hearts. You've raised us spiritually from the dead. And that by your grace, we are able to make that confession and to believe what your word says about the Lord Jesus in our hearts. We do confess it now, and we believe it, and we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.